You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Your other hosts today are national security lawyers here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. This week, we're going to continue our discussion of the Foreign Agents Registration Act with our guest, Bradley Hart, the author of Hitler's American Friends and a previous guest on this podcast. His book tells the history of Hitler's efforts to prevent the United States from entering World War II through the use of foreign influence campaigns. We're also talking with Katie Gideon of the Raytheon Company, who is a former Department of Justice attorney and the chief and principal deputy chief of the section there that investigates and prosecutes counterintelligence crimes. To hear the first part of our conversation with them, go back and listen to last week's episode. So the scope of FARA just requires that you have to register if you are acting on behalf of a foreign party. Is that correct? Well, yes, there is a registration requirement under FARA, um, but... FARA prohibits, I mean, it's important to think about the structure of the statute, right? It prohibits acting as a foreign agent without meeting that registration requirement and actually acting as a foreign agent and conducting certain activities without meeting that registration requirement. And in addition to the registration requirement, there are also disclosure requirements and record-keeping requirements that are that are within the statute. And if I could talk a mo- for a moment about the registration requirement, um, key points to keep in mind there, right? Um, agent has a defined term under the Act, and what you look for in determining whether somebody is an agent is direction or control. That's what you look for. Are they being directed or controlled? Now, payment, contract, money, that can be an indication that of an agency relationship, but it's not, not necessary to, to show an agency relationship. So then what kind of agents need to file? Well, it's those who are engaged in political activities or acting as political consultants or as public relations counsel or publicity agents. And, and so political activities is very much kind of the heart of FARA. What are political activities? And that also is a defined term under the Act. And so it's important to keep in mind, what is that? What does that mean? Well, it's any, any activity designed to influence the United States government or the United States public Right, right the voting things. public. Right. The voting public on either domestic or foreign policies of the United States or on the interests of a foreign government or foreign political party. Right? That those are what are construed as political activities within the scope of the act. Another thing to keep in mind under FARA, it's acting as an agent of a foreign principle, right? I didn't say foreign government, right? Mm. In within FARA foreign principle is defined as including foreign governments and foreign political parties, as well as foreign entities and individuals who are outside the United States who aren't U.S. citizens domiciled within the United States. And another thing to, to just keep in mind as you're, as you're thinking about the statute, right, we've got agent, political activities, foreign principle, there are exemptions, right? Think about a diplomat. Right. A diplomat is acting in sure. the United mm-hmm. States under the direction or control of a foreign government engaging in political activities, right? That's what they do. But there's an exemption under FARA for diplomats. There are also exemptions for those who are engaged in private, non-political activities, such as 
commercial activities or religious or educational activities. And the scope of those exemptions has been the subject of, you know, debate over the years and whether they're clear enough right. or not. I mean, you think about think about the educational activities exemption and you think about things like Confucius Institutes on university campuses. Are those educational institutions? Are they promoting education? Or are they somehow designed to influence and manipulate the American public? And these are these are, you know, debates that that people have about these kinds of activities. So that's the registration requirement. Um, as I mentioned, there are also disclosure requirements and record keeping requirements. The disclosure requirement, if an if an agent is going to distribute informational materials within the United States, then those materials also have to be filed with the Department of Justice, right? They have to they have to be given to the Department of Justice and they have to be labeled. They have to have on them a conspicuous statements that statement that indicates they're distributed by the agent on behalf of the foreign principal. Um, so let me let me pause you for a second yeah. because I'm thinking in my mind right now that there's occasionally a supplement that shows up in the paper version of the Washington Post absolutely. or online and yes, it's like absolutely. China something, right? Yes. And I believe there's attribution at the top of that, that this is a publication of the Chinese government or words to that effect. Absolutely. That's a, that's a perfect example. And that is uh, the China China Daily, I think, is that one, is registered as an agent under FARA. And yes, there is a labeling requirement that you'll see on there. Additional information on file with the Department of Justice. You'll find that on there. Well, and, and it's shortened RT. Sorry, so shortened RT, which used to be Russia television very clearly, but now sounds like RT. You know, it sounds like the guy that works in the gas station near your grandmother's house in North Carolina. <laughs> but yes, RT is also, and we, we can talk about that later as well, but yes, RT is, is registered as an agent under, under FARA, um, and they have to meet the disclosure and, and the labeling requirement. Um, and then, as I said, there's a record-keeping requirement, too, and agents under FARA have to maintain records about their activities, and they have to make them available for government inspection to ensure compliance. And the FAIR unit of the Department of Justice does go and conduct inspections of registered agents to make sure their materials are in compliance with the act. Wow. Bradley, we're living another round of foreign influence cases, but we know that history can be instructive and poetic. Um, what happened to those foreign agents that had taken up Hitler's cause? A lot of them spend time in prison, uh, as we've been talking about. It sounds uh, like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we want to know karmically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Know that They die miserably. <laughs> living in, you know, Everyone Cincinnati, Schlebed Hotel. This whole podcast has ended up in prison. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Farah takes a lot of these people by surprise in some senses because they have been operating with total impunity. A lot of them have been taking money from the German embassy. And when this new regulatory requirement comes in, they simply ignore it because they either don't understand it or they don't want to comply with it. Um, and so there's about two dozen prosecutions we think of, of FARA age, or agents, we should say, under FARA in this period, most of them for the German government. Um, later on, that number dramatically reduces. Virak, the most famous instance, um, spends a lot of time in prison. His literary career is essentially ruined, and he kind of does die in obscurity later on, although he does make some money off of his memoirs that he publishes late in his life. But um, he's probably the most prominent example of this. I think what's really important to realize, though, is that this was effective legislation. These people were taken out of, out of the public sphere because of FARA. And even though many of them got fairly light prison sentences of a year or two or even fines, uh, that experience alone took them out of the political mix at a key moment in American history. So for much of the war, these folks were were locked away. Um, and many of them essentially disappear from history at that point. When you talk about people like the leaders of the German-American boon, they really do meet some bad ends. So Fritz Kuhn, their leader, 
ends up getting deported after the war, ends up being housed in the former Dachau concentration camp um, in West Germany, and then actually apparently escapes with the help of a female guard who was infatuated with huh. him um, and, and dies on the run. So <laughs> wow, he's, an interesting, he's, he's an interesting guy. Like a yeah. movie, exactly. Um, oh, he, yes, absolutely. But but indeed, um, his successors and actually predecessors as leaders of the Boon meet even worse fates. One of them dies in a Soviet POW camp. Another one commits suicide um, rather than face a federal grand jury. So there are very few good endings for people who operate as Hitler's agents in this period. Hmm. There aren't that many published opinions, though, Katie, right? No, there are not a whole lot of published opinions on Farah. Um, there is a, a, a good one that addresses its constitutionality that, that is worth mentioning, right? It's USV Peace Information Center is, is the name of the case. And um, it's kind of interesting, right? Peace Information Center was an anti-war organization that was run by W.E.B. Du Bois and others. And this case was in 1951. So think of the time period, what's going on there, right? This is right smack in the middle of what is known frequently as the Second Red Scare, right, which ran from the mid to late 1940s to the mid to late 1950s. So this is 1951. And the U.S. government alleged that the Peace Information Center was acting as a Soviet agent. So the defendants in that case raised the constitutionality of FARA, right? They made arguments that Congress, in, in enacting it, had exceeded its powers in passing FARA. The court, though, D.C. District Court said, no, you know, the federal government has a right to legislate on foreign affairs and national defense, and asking foreign agents to register falls squarely within that authority. The defendants also argued that it was contrary to First Amendment freedom of speech. Court said, no, because the speech was not prohibited, and the registration requirement in that case was reasonable, right? The federal government can regulate speech. They also argued that it was contrary to the Fifth Amendment, privilege against self-incrimination, right? I have to provide this information to the Department of Justice. I shouldn't have to provide it. But the court said, no, you know what? It's not contrary to the Fifth Amendment. If you want to engage in certain activities, you have to provide certain information, and that's reasonable. Um, And then the final argument that the defendants in that case made was that it was contrary to due process because it was too indefinite, too vague. The terms in there were too vague. And the court looked at it and said, no, look, foreign agents defined foreign principles defined, um, it is not too indefinite. So so that's a published opinion that at least legally speaks pretty well to the constitutionality of the statute itself. Well, and all of this is some indication of sort of how powerful the United States is perceived on the global stage, likely even now that, you know, there would be such a heavy effort on the part of foreign governments over the last, frankly, century, and probably before, right? to sort of get the U.S. to take one position or another kind of reminds me of the end of uh, Vera Britain's Remembrance of War where, you know, they've been gassed, they're in France, the war, they're losing the war, she's sure they've lost the war, and she falls into a ditch, and then she sees this troop of healthy, upstanding guys chewing gum uh, marching down the streets in France, and it's the Americans, and the war turns at that point. So you can clearly understand when you see it from a British person's perspective, particularly somebody serving as a nurse, basically, um, during World War II, how powerful we were perceived by this Oxford-educated tiny woman who thought everything was lost. And you can see why the battle, you know, was being fought. But um, I do wonder, Katie, I I do remember the news uh, about a year and a half ago, was it, that the, what's the name of the goalie, that the Caps? Alex Ovechkin had started a goalie. He started a pro-Putin website, do you know? And I thought to myself at the time, I was like, hmm, 
could that be a FARA violation? I mean, I don't well, know. There's, if there, there need to be additional know. facts showing that there's direction or control in some way, right? If he, any, if a citizen believes Putin is awesome, the they can Putin start their own website <laughs> and say Putin is awesome. If they're directed or controlled by the foreign principal and engaging in political activities through that website, right. then you like have a far, far issue. Putin's uh, shirtless shirts and the horse and stuff. Yeah, no, thank you. Fine. <laughs> Sorry, I just want to say this one. The ick factor was really high. Um, okay. All right. So uh, in recent years, obviously, uh, Katie, there have been some uh, kind of shocking cases. We've had just... Uh, Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, General Flynn, good Lord, you know, who would have thought? And then I turned around last week when I was at the gym and on the on the TV console, it suddenly said Skadden Arps. You know, this august law firm, my goodness, you know, has offices facing the White House right there, has had to register as a foreign agent. Can you talk a little bit about these cases in general and whether or not FARA applies to things like social media threats, sure, Twitter sure. stuff? Yeah, so so there's a combination of things that we can address from the recent increase in FARA related matters in the news. And I, I want to emphasize, I said FARA related matters in the news, because we should think beyond the just cases, criminal cases, and think the bigger picture of FARA. It's important to really understand that. So, um, and, and we can't go through this podcast without mentioning that yesterday, the, just yesterday, the Department of Justice um, announced that they're stepping up their overall enforcement of illegal foreign influence operations, right, as they should. Right? So this is all, we've got this climate of, as you said, the recent increase in cases that we see, Manafort, Flynn, Gates. We've got the settlement from Skadden, and then we've got a bunch of other things. On the on the cases, let me just first make a point about that, right? Those have all really brought Farah into the spotlight. They exposed specific criminal activity, but they also simultaneously have helped reveal to those who weren't already familiar with Farah the importance of the statute and what it's designed to prevent. And, of course, the consequences of non-compliance. As we're sitting here today, we're waiting to see what the sentence will be for Manafort. So just for everyone yeah. who's checking their newspapers, <laughs> um, we're recording on uh, March 7th. So Yes, and even as we sit here, we understand that uh, Judge T.S. Ellis is still deliberating. He's deliberating <laughs> and hearing from uh, the parties in the Manafort case. Right, so so we'll hear on that what the consequences of non-compliance were for Manafort. And similarly, the Skadden settlement, right, $4.6 million they agreed to pay. And they, they, build, they build that I Monday know. before breakfast. <laughs> I know, I know. It's still a significant still, settlement. It is still a significant <laughs> settlement. Um, and, and they admitted, right, that they should have registered under FARA. And that all shows law firms need to take Farah seriously. And if you read through the Skadden settlement, they agreed to put in place a pretty robust Farah compliance program that I expect will be modeled at other law firms pretty soon, too. Um, so, so that's just a point on the cases. The second point that I want to make, um, people also can and really should look closely at other recent Farah related news for more of an understanding of how Farah works and why Farah matters. Right, just last month in February, China Global Television Network (CGTN) to your point about Russia Today becoming RT. Right, China Global Television Network (CGTN) 
is what they're known as, registered as a foreign agent. Does Larry King work for them, too? <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Yes, not yet. Um, China's Xinhua news agency similarly has been asked, asked to register. And as you mentioned earlier, Russia's RT news organization, after a pretty public back-and-forth debate with the Department of Justice finally registered in, in 2017. There's a there's actually a great article from The Atlantic from a couple years ago called um, when, do, when is a uh, TV channel a foreign agent? And this is pre, it was written pre-2016 <laughs> pre election um, and pre-RT registration. Um, in the case of these foreign news organizations, I mean, it's really, it's really interesting and can be complex. Do they have an obligation to register, or, is it, or are they just presenting the American people with an alternative viewpoint, right? Are they doing that, or are they actually masking as a news organization and really presenting a manipulated, controlled view to try to influence opinion? It's not always an easy answer to that question. Well, the really Germans would say the BBC is the problem. Well, and it, and it is really difficult these days, especially when the term news now has taken on this you know, this valence of, well, it's fake news, is it real news? Like, it's it's very difficult to point out, okay, well, it's okay if an American um, news agency puts forth this information as news versus, you know, the exact same content from a foreign actor would, you know, require these kinds of requirements. Right, and, and so DOJ, when it's looking at this and making decisions about whether or not to send, you know, a letter to a foreign news organization saying, we think you have an obligation to register, here's why, right, they're looking to see what is the content, who is behind the message, is it a foreign government that is actually actually behind it, or is it not? And, and so I just want to make the point, right, in addition to the cases, look at these other things, CGTN, RT, um, whether Xinhua ultimately registers, and, and look at those and, and think about that. These registrations, those registrations and other registrations that are hopefully happening more frequently are a really important aspect of FARA working as it was intended to work. Right, exposing in those instances foreign efforts to manipulate or influence opinion in the United States. And if I could just make one last point on the recent news items. Please. Illegal foreign influence posed a national security threat in 1938, right, clearly. Brad has excellent, you know, knowledge um, and uh, speaks quite well about, about that history. It poses, as we all see, a very real threat today as well, right? Footnote C, 2017 assessment of the United States intelligence community about interference in the 2016 election, right? Foreign influences poses a very real threat today. In 2019, technology has evolved 80 years after the statute, right? We're no longer, as you said, throwing pamphlets out windows, that's not, that's not the way that the foreign influence operations are geared. We've got targeted ads on Facebook. We've got Russian trolls. We've got Twitter bots. We've got things masked through multiple layers, making it really difficult to dig through and prove who that ultimate original source really is. But, you know, turning a spotlight on it, and as DOJ announced yesterday, this, this reinvigorated foreign influence campaign, turning a spotlight on it through criminal cases or registrations is really essential and deserves this high priority from law enforcement. And it's, it's the whole point, really, of FARA, right? making sure American people and the American lawmakers have this very complete picture of who's behind efforts to influence them so they can weigh that accordingly. 
I think that's a very, very important point. And uh, one thing that we haven't mentioned tonight, but we're going to hyperlink, um, if you have a, just a couple of minutes, you know, this we've reached this terrific sort of policy balance and public knowledge balance, but there was a, there had to be an inspector general's evaluation, did there not, of the forest section? And we could talk about what wasn't working then that suddenly is, is seems to be working now. Yeah, and I, I don't know that I'd say it wasn't working, right? So they, they did an, an audit of the ferry unit, and they came up with 14, I think it was 14, recommendations. We can link it in the, um, on the site. But DOJ agreed with all of them. And to my knowledge, I think all of them have, have been implemented. Um, and I don't think it was found that they weren't working. Uh, so they're, they're, in fact, I think in the lead-up to the OIG report, audits by DOJ had it are actually, in fact, increased um, audit, DOJ audits, like going out to look at registered foreign agents. But I no doubt that Inspector General report helped to shine even more of a light on FARA and certainly, um, you know, with the activities that have increased within the news, you can see that there is a greater emphasis on FARA enforcement. So, Bradley, based on your sort of role as a historian, um, looking forward, do you have any sort of thoughts about uh, what we're seeing right now and how that compares to what we've seen in the past? Uh, yeah, I think there's some really uncanny parallels, especially when you look at what the, the type of stuff that we're seeing in the public sphere, right? If you look at something like RT and their, and their social media presences, much of the content that they're disseminating, obviously geared at an American audience, is divisive. There, there's this effort to divide Americans against one another, and that's exactly what we saw with with the Nazis in this period. And I'm not necessarily equating those those two organizations, obviously, or the or the rhetoric, but dividing Americans against one another is a very easy thing to do in some senses because there are, are sort of deep seated tensions that foreign actors believe that they can use to their own ends. And so that's really the comparison that we see. The journal, the point about journalists is quite interesting. So George Sylvester Virak, we mentioned earlier, his cover was as a journalist. He actually had an affiliate with a Munich-based newspaper. And so that gave him the legitimacy to go out and conduct his other activities. And so originally there was a spe specific exemption for journalists who were accredited in certain ways. Um, and so I think when you look especially at these foreign news organizations, that's a really interesting aspect of all this. When you talk about social media and the digital age, then, then we're in sort of totally uncharted territory. I think the interesting thing for me, looking at how FARA is constructed now and was originally constructed then, is this definition of a publicity agent. Hmm. What does this actually mean in the present day? This was a very specific profession in the 1930s, but now publicity agents mm -hmm. can be very broadly construed in some ways. Anybody posting social media could be argued to be a publicity agent. And so I think as, as we think about this legislation being reformed, a, a more robust set of definitions of what these rules would be and, and what FAR is actually covering is really going to be the key to, to moving forward. Right. Yeah, and I would agree with that. Um, I would also point out some of the legislation that has swirled around recently, right? Last year, Grassley had a bill and Feinstein had a bill. Both um, had uh, some improvements to FARA. Both of them included um, giving Department of Justice civil investigative demand authority so that when they believe somebody is suspected of being a foreign agent and the person writes back saying, nope, nothing to see here, that <laughs> if they have sufficient, they could, you know, use civil investigative demand authority in the right situations, right, to obtain additional information to really finally determine whether someone has an obligation to register. The other um, thing that has been present in some of the legislation that has circled around is, is uh, repealing the exemption under the Lobbying Disclosure Act, because in, in 1995, 
an exemption was put in place for those acting as agents of um, foreign companies could register under the Lobbying Disclosure Act instead of under FARA. Now, Lobbying Disclosure Act is overseen by Congress. FARA is overseen by DOJ. The requirements in the registration statement for FARA are more onerous than the requirements of the registration statement under the Lobbying Disclosure Act. So uh, if you're following, right, the exemption that lets them register under the LDA means they get to follow less stringent registration requirements. And so that, oh, you know... Many of those companies are owned by foreign governments. It, well, I mean, that's one of the exactly. problems is, and, you know, that's I think that's why our companies sometimes have a hard time operating in theater because somebody thinks, well, it's Exxon. It's the United States, because elsewhere it would be uh, an entity owned by the government. And so I can see where that becomes a bit dicey. Right. So, so that has been a feature of um, a number of different bills that, that, uh, that have swirled around. And I think there's also H.R. 1, which was introduced in the current Congress, um, which does also give Department of Justice or would give Department of Justice civil investigative demand authority. All right, so listeners out there, go ahead and set your Google Scholar alerts and your Westlaw alerts to track these bills and uh, go on whatever you use, congress.gov or I use GovTrack. Uh, you can keep up with these things as they're produced. I get the daily dump on FARA and quite a lot of other things, but that will also help you follow this um, in, the, in the days and weeks and years after this podcast. So, Bradley and Katie, we are really delighted that you could come and uh, take the time this evening to, uh, to talk to us and educate us on FARA, past, present, and future, and we hope you'll return. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Well, and we're going we're gonna to hyperlink a lot of stuff. There's going to be a lot of hyperlinks <laughs> this time from uh, how to find Bradley's book to other resources. Bradley's published a number of recent articles on the topic. I think, you know, obviously you can hear these are not easily resolved issues. Also, check out our previous podcast on Bradley's book where he does go into greater depth about all of the history uh, of the United States right before um, the war. is really interesting because no one knew it was going to be happening, and I see, I'm wondering if we're living through a similar time right now. Sure, sure. Anybody wants to read it, you know, hear about Lindbergh? Um, and all of this madness, right. <laughs> and, and we sort of a little bit more thorough discussion, if I recall correctly, on the Madison yes. Square Gardens incident, um, and how these members of Congress were compromised. Since I'm sure there are people right now who suspect members of Congress uh, are subject to foreign influence at this time. But anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, come back and see us again, you guys. I'm glad you came, but I have to say honestly, this is a topic I feel could be the subject of a four-hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And you can find those links in the notes to this podcast or on our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, where you'll also find more information on the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks so much. Uh, drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or please visit our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. All right. Thanks for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.